This is our last lecture on C.S. Lewis and the recovery of reason. C.S. Lewis probably doesn't need an introduction for most of you. He was known as a Christian apologist, as a writer of children's fiction, and as a professor of English at Oxford University. So why would we teach C.S. Lewis in a course on great books and philosophy? Well, hopefully by now you know that philosophy is not about professional training in an academic discipline. It's about reflecting on reality and getting clear on the truth about reality and the deepest questions. And C.S. Lewis was a master of that. This book we will study in this lecture is The Abolition of Man. That book was written in 1943. I think most of you know what was happening in 1943, especially in England in the middle of World War II, when it looked like Western civilization was collapsing. This war exemplified the crisis of the West. And that crisis involved a loss of confidence in reason's ability to uh, discover the truth and to guide human beings in pursuit of the good. It also involved an abuse of reason in the various totalitarian regimes such as the Soviet Union. So the abolition of man was written in the midst of deep reflection by C.S. Lewis about the sources of that war and that crisis and those problems. Now, this little book is not going to tie together all of the loose ends that we have presented over the course of this lecture. But I hope to give you a little bit of direction by just offering some insights into this book. It's incredibly rich, and yet it's short. That was Lewis's singular style. He could say things with incredible economy of language that were clear, but also very deep. And so here's my challenge. How do you teach a master teacher? The danger is that you only make the teacher less clear. And that's the risk I'm taking in this lecture right now. The good news is that this book is still in print and it's easy to read. And I really encourage you to take it up and read it and have a discussion about it. Because I've been teaching it for 15 years and every time I teach it, I learn something new. I'm going to focus on three parts to the abolition of man. Not the three parts that the book is written in, but three themes that are in the book. The first one is the story that C.S. Lewis tells about how we got to this crisis of the West. The second is to talk about the chest. The first part of the abolition is called Men Without Chess. And Lewis gives that image a lot of attention. And so do I. I want to reflect on what he says about that. And the third really important concept in the abolition of man is what C.S. Lewis calls the Tao. And so I'm going to talk about all three of those things and then try to summarize it in some concluding remarks. So let's begin with Lewis's story about modernity. In part three, Lewis tells us that the crisis of the West is really a crisis of reason. 
It's a crisis of reason's ability to know nature. And Lewis traces that crisis back to the beginning of modern science. He singles out Francis Bacon. And he points out some of the things that we have already looked at and studied. I'm going to read a passage here from Lewis's account. Lewis writes, We reduce things to mere nature and order that we may conquer them. What does that mean? Lewis points out that at the beginning, at the origins of modern science, a decision was made to think about nature a different way. I'm going to put this in terms of two cues that you should have in your verbal arsenal because they're really useful. The short of it is that the decision was made to think about nature in terms of quantity rather than quality. The idea was that if we could think about nature purely in quantitative terms, in what was measurable and predictable, we could then gain a kind of power over it. But that meant excluding all of our qualitative judgments, those judgments that show all those things that we ordinarily experience when we see nature that attract us, the, 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 the depth of the blue sky, the beauty of the sunset, the goodness of our tastes, those are no longer considered to be part of nature. Now, Lewis points out that we reduce the qualitative to the quantitative in order that we might conquer it. This is really important because up to this point, we've been talking about epistemology, the epistemological turn in philosophy as an epistemological problem. How do we know that our ideas reflect reality? How do we know that our secondary qualities, our perceptions of color and sound, are really based in things out there? But what Lewis points out is that that problem is not an epistemological problem. The, way, the, the reason we see nature as quantitative was a choice. Here's how he puts it. We are always conquering nature because nature is a name for what we have, to some extent, conquered. The price of conquest is to treat a thing as mere nature. The poet Wordsworth put it this way, we murder in order to dissect. To know what a frog is like, you have to murder the frog. And then you can look at the anatomy of the frog. Maybe that's an experiment some of you did in high school. So Lewis tells us that we reduce nature to mere quantity, to mere matter and motion, so that we can control it. That's how science works. But every time we reduce nature to quantity, we lose something of its quality. Every conquest over nature increases her domain. The stars do not become nature till we can weigh and measure them. The soul does not become nature till we can psychoanalyze her. The resting 
a powers from nature is also the surrendering of things to nature. We can't gain power over nature until we describe it in this purely qualitative way. Now, Lewis tells us that as long as this process stops short of the final stage, we may well hold that the gain outweighs the loss, because it is true that the reduction has given us all kinds of scientific benefits in medicine and technology. But as soon as we take the final step, Lewis writes, of reducing our own species to the level of mere nature, the whole process is stultified. For this time, the being who stood to gain and the being who has been sacrificed are one and the same. What prevents us from reducing ourselves to being mere nature like the rest of the things? What prevents us thinking of ourselves as mere quantity and not quality? And once that happens, who or what is going to direct the scientific technology? Lewis writes, This is one of the many instances where to carry a principle to what seems a logical conclusion produces absurdity. It is like the famous Irishman who found that a certain kind of stove reduced its fuel bill by half and then concluded that two stoves of the same kind would enable him to warm his house with no fuel at all. So what's the remedy? What is going to prevent us from reducing all of nature, including ourselves, to quantity, and therefore, thereby eliminating any ability for our distinctively human selves to guide and direct scientific power. Lewis writes, Is it then possible to imagine a new natural philosophy, continually conscious that the natural object, and he puts that in quotation marks, produced by analysis and abstraction is not reality, but only a view. And always correcting the abstraction, here is the point. Just to repeat it again, what Lewis suggests is that the epistemology of modern science, which we have, and modern philosophy, the critical turn which we have found so problematic is actually rooted in a background ethical decision. That epistemology doesn't simply tell us about reality. It was a way of conceiving about reality for a different purpose. So the question is, how do we recover that proper understanding, that proper, how do we retain, how do we protect that qualitative understanding of reality, what Lewis would call that more full understand, understanding of reality. Lewis tells us, when it explained, it would not explain away. When it spoke of the parts, it would remember the whole. So there's the story that he tells. He calls for a new natural philosophy. Now, I want to reflect a little bit more on what that new natural philosophy might look like. Just try to give us an impression of what's at root in that new natural philosophy that Lewis calls for. And to see that, we are going to turn to the first part of the abolition of man, men without chess. Lewis, in his inimitable style, 
starts the abolition of man with what seems like a very trite story. He finds an elementary school grammar text written. He tries to keep it anonymous. He says, we're just going to call the authors Gaius and Titius. And he's just going to use it as an illustration. And in this book, he relates a story, a famous story involving the poet Coleridge, who was standing by a waterfall and overheard a conversation between two tourists. And one tourist called the waterfall beautiful, and the other called the waterfall sublime. Suddenly a question is raised within our qualitative framework. Who's right? Is the waterfall beautiful? Or is the waterfall sublime? What does beauty mean? What does sublime mean? But the authors of this elementary textbook tell the reader, who in this case are elementary school children, that in fact, both tourists are wrong. What the text says is that beauty and sublimity are not in nature or in things. The tourists think they're saying something about the waterfall, when in fact, they're really only saying things that are subjective to them about their emotional responses to the waterfall. What Lewis suggests is that the crisis of the West is right there in that elementary school textbook. Two people who are trying to teach literary criticism have actually presented a very complex philosophy, a metaphysics, an understanding of human nature, which they've never, they haven't defended or argued for. And that philosophy will have consequences. Lewis points out three important consequences of the account of human nature that Gaius and Titius give. First of all, it cuts out from the experience of young people the richness of reality that we can access through the imagination and emotion. Consider all of the ways in which the imagination and literature and images can deepen our understanding of things. Secondly, by cutting emotion out of the education, we leave emotion to, the, to itself. The refusal to train emotion, Lewis suggests, actually makes it easier to manipulate. Here's how Lewis puts it. The right defense against false sentiments is to inculcate just sentiments. By starving the sensibility of our pupils, we only make them easier prey to the propagandist when he comes. For famished nature will be avenged, and a hard heart is no infallible protection against a soft head. Thirdly, Lewis points out that by failing to pay attention to the emotions as a possible bridge to reality, the emotions, the imagination, as actually having a cognitive aspect, we actually undermine the effectiveness of human action. He thinks about the Roman phrase, it is a sweet and fitting thing to die for one's country. Under the training that Gaius and Titius promote, 
the question will be asked, do you taste things when you die for your country? And in what sense is it fitting? Those are purely subjective value responses. And so Gaius and Titius have to give some other account of why someone would ever risk their life for their country. As Lewis points out, in battle it is not syllogisms that will keep the reluctant nerves and muscles to their post in the third hour of the bombardment. What Lewis points to instead in the first part of the abolition of man is an older anthropology. And that older anthropology includes what Lewis, following Plato, calls the chest. Lewis quotes Plato here at length. We were told it all long ago by Plato. As the king governs by his executive, so reason must rule the mere appetites by means of the spirited element. Remember, I told you in the very first lecture we would read this. The head rules the body through the chest, the seat of magnanimity, of emotions organized by trained habit into stable sentiments. The chest, magnanimity, sentiment, these are the indispensable liaison officers between cerebral man and visceral man. It may even be said that it is by this middle element that man is man, for by his intellect he is mere spirit, and by his appetite mere animal. It's the chest that makes us human. And the effect of modern philosophy is to, as Lewis suggests, is to make us men without chess. The challenge then is to understand the chest is an integral part of our nature. And what Lewis suggests is that this part of us, this part of sentiment, these sentiments in us, actually have a rational component to them. This leads to the third point I want to make, the Tao. Lewis gives a name for this rational component of the chest. He calls it the Tao. The Tao is a strange word for him to use. It's a Chinese word that means the way. Why does Lewis choose a word from Chinese to write to Westerners about the crisis of the West? Part of his reason is to remind us that this feature he is talking about in human nature is a universal feature. That Plato wasn't just making up the chest. Plato was simply describing a feature that other thinkers from other cultures were also aware of. It also is a reminder that this is not a book of Christian apologetics. This is a book of philosophy. Lewis later tells us that the Tao can also be regarded as the first principles of practical reason or the natural law. That's what he means by it. What is the Tao? Lewis simply tells us the Tao is the doctrine of objective value. It is a belief that there are things that correspond or do not correspond within us to the way things are. The Tao is our emotions in this account, our value judgments can either correspond or not correspond to reality. And if this part of us is true, then Lewis suggests 
It's very important that we provide an education for it to make us fully and completely human. The subtitle of this book refers then to education. Again, education and ethics comes before philosophy. It's the condition on which philosophy rests. Now, what does Lewis tell us about the Tao? Briefly, he tells us that the Tao involves the first principles of practical reason. They're at the basis of all moral judgments. For this reason, Lewis tells us that they're self-evident. The Tao is a way of seeing reality, which is self-evident. What he means by this is it can't be proved. It's a way of seeing that can't be argued for by a demonstrative proof. This is how Lewis puts it. The principles are in the Tao or they are nowhere else. Unless you accept these without question as being to the world of action, which axioms are to the world of theory, you can have no practical principles whatever. This is a paraphrase, if you recall, of what St. Thomas Aquinas says in his treatment of the natural law. You cannot reach them as conclusions. They are premises. You may, since they can give no reason for themselves, of a kind to silence Gaius and Titius, regard them as sentiments. But then you must give up contrasting real or rational value with sentimental value. All value will be sentimental, and you must confess on pain of abandoning every value that all sentiment is not merely subjective. You may, on the other hand, regard them as rational, nay, as rationality itself, as things so obviously reasonable that they neither demand nor admit proof. But then you must allow that reason can be practical, that an ought must not be dismissed because it cannot produce some is as its credential. If nothing is self-evident, nothing can be proved. Similarly, if nothing is obligatory for its own sake, nothing is obligatory at all. Lewis tells us that the Tao cannot be proved by demonstrative arguments, but he does not leave us resourceless. He gives us, in fact, two different ways to address this either-or problem. Either we trust in the Tao or we do not. The first is this book. He doesn't make any demonstrative arguments. He's told us he can't prove there is a Tao. But Lewis gives us dialectical arguments. He shows us the high cost of denying that there is objective value. To refuse to accept the Tao, to refuse to trust in it, leaves you with the world of power without any discipline of reason or moral judgment. It's a world in which the powerful few can control and dominate and remake the many weak. If that is not a world that you want to live in, then perhaps you can reconsider whether the Tao exists. But there's a second and even deeper response that Lewis suggests to us. One way to know whether to choose to live in the Tao or outside the Tao is to step into the Tao and see what its world looks like. 
After all, you can't know what it's like seeing through a pair of glasses until you put them on. And then you can make a decision. Does this reality look more real, more compelling, more attractive to me than the world without these glasses? And through his fiction, Lewis gives us a richly elaborated world of life inside the Tao and shows us the tragic consequences of people who choose to live outside the Tao. In this sense, Lewis's fiction is not a separate part of his work in philosophy. Lewis may be at his most philosophical when he's writing his fiction, just like Plato was most at his philosophical when he was writing his dialogues. In this course, I've tried to introduce you to some of the great minds in the history of philosophy, to tell you a little bit about some of the great texts and the great ideas. So I hope you will keep climbing up that mountain. Keep your eyes fixed on the top. But sometimes, turn around, look over your shoulder, enjoy the sights around you. I'm confident that if you make that journey, you will never regret it. It will be the journey of your lifetime. Thank you.